Now of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. 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 This is Camille Foster of Freethink and of this very fine podcast, The Fifth Column, obviously. If you're new to the podcast, this is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. Another way to put that might be to say that this is a podcast about journalism, about journalists, and about the news of the moment, or at least the big stories and ideas that are shaping the time that we live in. It's hosted by myself, Camille Foster, and Michael Moynihan, who is a national correspondent for Vice News and is a participant in their nightly show, Vice News Tonight, uh, that appears on HBO. Our very good friend, Matt Welch, who is the editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, and our co-conspirator, Anthony Fisher, who is now the politics editor at Insider. Uh, This week is a bit of a deviation from our usual Battle Royale-style roundtable conversations, Really excited to bring this dispatch to you. It's me in conversation with four guys who, any one of them, I would have loved to just do one-on-one for an hour or two. But somehow or another, we got into this remarkable situation where all of the stars aligned and all four of the guys ended up in the studio with me at once. It is among the more remarkable things that I've ever been able to participate in professionally and was just richly rewarding for me because I'm a huge fan of all four of these guys. I am truly excited about the opportunity to bring the conversation to you. But before we get there, we do have some housekeeping that we need to take care of. As you may recall, in the last dispatch, we did announce that we will be having our very first live recording of the podcast here in New York City on Tuesday, December 4th at the legendary comedy cellar here in New York City. If you are in New York, if you are somewhere close by and want to come, hell, if you are in LA or Tokyo and you want to get here for that event, um, I hope that you will. And if you're looking for more information on the event, like where to get tickets, et cetera, you can find that at wethefifth.com forward slash events. That's wethefifth.com forward slash events. Barring act of God, I will be there. Michael Moynihan will be there. Matt Welch, Anthony Fisher, and a couple of special guests who I am going to not name right now because I don't have to. Why not keep you in suspense? Really do hope you turn up. Um, would love to see you in person, come out and say hello. And I'm totally buying a drink for the person who travels the furthest to get there. At any rate, on to today's recording. Uh, As I mentioned, this is a conversation with four people. It's a lot of folks to have uh, in one room, uh, but somehow we made it work. That may be owed to the fact that we are four people who happen to have some things in common. Uh, On this podcast, I have a tendency to talk about race stuff a lot, and I do have a number of heterodox perspectives on race, I find myself frequently dissenting from what I think a lot of right-thinking people are supposed to think, feel, and believe about questions of race. There's a a pretty broad consensus uh, that might be described as anti-racism that tends to be pretty prevalent uh, on the left, uh, that tends to get a lot of traction in national mainstream news stories. And that's really come to define a couple of quintessential issues of our time. And I'm not alone in having some unusual perspectives on this issue. And all four of the guys that I am talking to in this podcast similarly have some unusual perspectives. That said, we also disagree with one another in some interesting ways. And we get into a lot of that, too. A few disclaimers up front. I think a number of people who hear this might think to themselves, oh, I mean, these are a bunch of black conservatives talking about how they dislike the liberals. 
it's not that at all. For one thing, I think calling us all black is, well, there are some challenges with that and we'll get into it. And another thing, I don't know that any of us currently identify as conservatives. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, only one of us has ever so identified themselves. But that's it for disclaimers. Uh, the august assemblage I will be in conversation with today include Glenn Lowry, who is a professor of social science and economics at Brown University. He's also the host of The Glenn Show at Blogging Heads TV. Thomas Chatterton Williams, who is a remarkable guy who currently resides in Paris. He is the author of Losing My Cool. He's a contributing writer at New York Times Magazine and a national fellow at New America, where he is composing a new book project about being a black father of white-looking children in Paris. That's his description of his children. I'm not saying they're white-looking. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. And John McWhorter, who's a professor of linguistics and philosophy and music at Columbia. Um, I've talked to John before on this podcast. I'm a huge fan of his work. And his, his books have been pretty foundational for me uh, in terms of a lot of my thinking. John also John hosts also the Lexicon Valley, Valley podcast, podcast for Slate, for Slate and, and writes for The, writes Atlantic. For the Atlantic. And rounding out our group, is a young man by the name of Coleman Hughes. He is a 22-year-old undergraduate philosophy major at Columbia University. And he's also a columnist at Quillette Magazine, where he has published a number of pieces over the course of this year, um, some of which have just been incredible heaters. Uh, Coleman kind of exploded onto the scene earlier this year and started doing some writing. He's got a number of really thoughtful insights uh, about a lot of the issues that I mentioned already, um, as you will be able to hear, uh, I, I've only met Coleman uh, in the last couple of months, but I'm already a huge fan of him. And I think he's a really remarkable talent and he has a great many thoughts and insights beyond race as well. And is going to be writing on those things and talking about those things in the near future. Um, but he's just a, an exemplary, exemplary dude. Uh, as I told the guys just before we got started, uh, being all together with them reminded me of when I went to go see Team USA play some exhibition games here in the United States. Uh, but I also had an opportunity to go hang out with them in practice. And I'm standing behind the backboard watching LeBron James and Kevin Durant trade baskets with one another. Only in this particular case, I actually got to go out and play on the floor with these guys. And it was, uh, it was a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, we began the conversation by trying to figure out exactly what it is that we all have in common. There is definitely a perspective that's on offer, something that evades a simple label. And it's something that I think John McWhorter speaks to in a piece that he wrote for the Daily Beast back in 2015. Uh, the title of that piece is Anti-Racism, Our Flawed New Religion. Um, I submitted to the guys that I thought it might be something like a manifesto for all of us, even though it was written a, a little ways back, but it's still totally worth your time. When you enter into this conversation, you're going to hear us discussing that piece. And I may break in briefly just to introduce folks as they talk so that you can differentiate between our voices as we go. But I'll say one more thing. Um, if I were to try to put it into my own words, I think what we have in common is that we're all skeptical of the prevailing sensibilities about race, uh, about racism and even racial inequality. These are sensibilities that are particular to, but not at all exclusive to, people on the left. But they have increasing importance in a variety of contexts, in the academy, in media, and of course in our politics, and certainly in our newsrooms. Uh, it's why I wanted to talk about it with these guys. It's why I talk about it frequently on the podcast, and it is among the many reasons why I am so delighted to be able to bring this totally interesting, unprecedented assemblage of human talent uh, to your ear holes right now. 
And we begin with John McWhorter describing his 2015 piece on anti-racism. The fifth column. The heart of that piece was saying to be enlightened on race among a great many people has become less a matter of learning what one might do or what one could do to help change things with there being agreement, certainly among us all, and I think among most educated people, that there are some things that need to be changed and that racism exists, but that it's gotten to the point that to be an anti-racist is to harbor a kind of commitment to a sort of virtue signaling, a well-intended virtue signaling, where you show that you're aware that racism exists and has power, and showing that has become the central goal rather than translating it into being interested in any kind of change. So you're showing that you're not a racist rather than combating the effects of racism. And I make some analogies such as one of them, and I won't name the rest of them, being that the obsession these days with indicating that you know that you have white privilege is analogous to the role that original sin plays in Christian philosophy. And my problem with anti-racism, as I wrote in that piece, and which I think is still true even in the age of Donald Trump, if the idea is since Trump has been elected, would I change that piece? And no, not not a word, is that if you're a modern anti-racist as opposed to, say, an anti-racist in 1965, then often you end up leaving real black problems unaddressed out of a sense that what you're supposed to address is that which shows that you know that racism exists as opposed to that which helps poor black people who need help. So that's what that article was. And I rewrote it basically for the American interest last year and fleshed it out a little bit. Coleman Hughes. Yeah, I think your your religion analogy is spot on. And one way in which I, I've, I've extended that or, or I've seen it manifest is the relationship between uh, modern Americans and are and black history, essentially the history of injustice against black people, because the way I see it, there are kind of two ways to learn history. One is the normal you're learning about World War One in class and you do the unit on it and you get as interested as, as you feel is appropriate. And when you're done with that, you move on to the next subject. But then there's a religious way to learn history, which is you go to a church every single week and you know the story of Jesus but you have to learn it every week for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And I'm increasingly seeing that the way we treat slavery and Jim Crow, it's more verging into the category of religious history. So, for example, I know if I read the New York Times every day, maybe once every two months, I will read a piece about lynching. Mm -hmm. um, why? I mean, I understand everyone should know the history of lynching, of course. Everyone should know the history of injustice against black people in this country. But it it's a jarring double standard to me that if you read the New York Times every day, you won't necessarily hear anything about the fact that homicide is the number one cause of death among young black boys. You might hear about that once every two years, mm -hmm. and it will be framed in such a way so as to point the finger at white America. Mm -hmm. But you can consistently hear about grievances that are decades old and that are, you know, it's helping no one really to, to dredge this up constantly. And that's religious. That's why you go to church, partly because a lot of religion requires a certain suspension of disbelief. And so you need every week to be supported in having faith, as it were. And in that same way, you need to be supported in a suspension of disbelief that allows you, for example, to be more upset about the rogue white cop killing one person than the hundreds of boys killing each other in Chicago every summer. Yes, exactly. Len Lowry. John knows that um, I'm not a 
uh, in every respect a big fan of the religion analogy. <laughs> you never, you never were. <laughs> well, because I used to be religious. I was a born again Christian, baptized at the age of forty. A deacon in a relatively uh, fundamentalist uh, congregation for the better part of a decade. I've moved away from that, and I don't want to go into that. That would take us off track. But I just want to say that I think more is going on in religious association than simply a kind of um, mindless affirmation of some dry doctrine that people have to recant uh, or a, a belief in magic or some such. There's also community in which people come together and are supportive of each other. And, and there's a effort that people are undertaking to impute some kind of meaning to their lives in a universe that's chaotic and uh, difficult and uh, actually, I think, now without meaning at the end of the day, which is a Nietzschean thought to think, and it's a very terrifying place to be. And that may just be our lot. But I, but I don't think it's fair to religion <laughs> to, to uh, equate it to anti-racism, although anti-racism, well, I think, is correctly described in part as a, as a religious phenomenon. I want to say a couple of things, though, in response to Camille's uh, uh, prompt. Why are we all here? I note that we're all black. Or something. That's probably part of it. Or something. That, that's a controversial yeah. statement. Well, well, well said. Well said. Well, you know. Uh, and I note that we're all male. That's a whole other thing. And I note that we're all, in some sense, iconoclastic. We're all kind of off the reservation. We're, we're, we're all people freely thinking for ourselves uh, in um, uh, conflict with uh, the zeitgeist. We're saying stuff that's not supposed to be said. We're raising questions that aren't supposed to be asked. We're dissatisfied with the status quo anti-narrative about the problems of race in the country. Uh, so I just want to put that on the table. And if I just may, since I have the floor, one more thing and tell you why I'm here or why I'm in this space, this iconoclastic off the reservation, uh, not going along with the program space, because I am distressed after a half century. I mean, we are in 2018. Civil Rights Act of 1964 was 1964. That's 54 years. That's a long time. It's longer than the distance between Appomattox and Versailles. Wow. I'm given to say, I just want that you to think good. about that. I'm, That's that a long good. time. And when you look at the gaps, at the numbers, at the number of people in prison, at the test scores, at the family structure, at the employment numbers, at the wealth gap, at the et cetera, the gaps are persistent and they don't show any sign of going away. Now, that's a first order fire alarm ringing circumstance. We're in the 20, well into the 21st century. The world is not standing still. It's moving on. The country is very dynamic. Its character is being made and remade every decade, every two decades. Meanwhile, we're stuck with the same old story. We're still talking about Jim Crow. We're still talking about slavery. This is a disaster. And it's an intellectual failure as well as a political failure. It's a failure, sure, of American institutions, not the right legislation, laws, not the right program and policy. But it is also an intellectual failure of liberalism and of African-American intellectual leadership. We don't know how to think about these problems anymore. We are deluded and we're uh, misleading ourselves. And one of the reasons I think we're all around this table is because in one way or another, all of us in some sense, and you can correct me if I misstate, recognize that this is so and are determined to do something about it. 
this this question of the the notion of anti-racism, if we can call it that, um, perhaps woke skepticism uh, is a, another phrase we could use. But hmm. the the notion that um, anti-racism might actually have some unintended consequences, that it's generally good for people to be opposed to racism. We all agree. That is the better um, way. <laughs> we to should be, be doing yes. that. Um, but the notion of anti-racism actually has baggage associated with it. For example, thinking about problems in a particular way and obscuring all of the important details and gradations that might be there, the other questions that you never bother to pose, um, and the various things that you find that you can't say without invoking people's ire. One of the things that I think um, it really uh, ends up reinforcing is is the centrality of of whiteness, actually, in society. And so uh, there's a chosen people in this kind of anti-racist religion, and there's only one people who act. And they mm-hmm. um, it comes down, as John pointed out, to their salvation. But the, um, the black people, the people of color, the people that they're supposedly concerned about are always contingent. And that's one of the things that really um, strikes me the most about this moment and really bothers me so much about the kind of woke essentialism is that uh, it kind of really overlaps with things that uh, outright white nationalists and white supremacists told me um, they want. Uh, hmm. it, you know, the, the idea that, uh, that, that, that there is something special about whiteness that, um, you know, that's a point that many anti-racists agree on with white supremacists. There is something special. That they're, um, they're different. They're inherently different. <clears throat> There's a power there. And you can be kind of guilty about that power. You can want to renounce that power. You can want to um, be sorry for exercising that power. But no one is disagreeing on the fact that you have some power that, uh, that none of us here can ever have, no matter what we achieve, no matter what we do. And I can't accept that in my life. Can I add to that just this? Not only are you powerful in the agency sense that outcomes depend on what you do, but you're morally malleable because the very logic of my appeal to you is that I will persuade you on the basis of moral reasoning to change the actions that you're taking, which are so all powerful. You are an agent. Mm-hmm. That is you white person. You mm-hmm. can be persuaded or cajoled or shamed into acting differently. Whereas if I were to talk about the out-of-wedlock birth rate amongst African-American families or the homicide rate in the cities of where young black men are killing each other in large numbers or the very low scores being exhibited by the bulk of the African-American population on various uh, measures of intellectual achievement, those outcomes are not the consequence of the decisions that people are making and they're not subject to black people are making and they're not subject to revision. Black people can't live better or differently. We must live the way in which history and the forces of white supremacy compel us to live. Exactly. But white people can live differently. Hmm. They can be in favor of affirmative action or against it. They, they can uh, put the cop in prison for 20 years for shooting the black kid or not. Although there's, there's also some fatalism in it as well. I mean, some of the people who hold this perspective talk about white supremacy, the, the sort of specter of white supremacy as something that is inescapable. Um, and completely immutable, both in the sense that it happened, therefore it has consequence forever and ever, amen, but also that white people can't change. There's always an undercurrent of bigotry in the various things that they're doing. Um, and uh, it might be useful at this point to, to turn the conversation to some of those specific manifestations of inequality that are so often talked about. And we've already... Can I just slightly that. disagree before we oh, go do for that? It. Um, I think... 
you said that there there's a sense that white supremacy is immutable and white people are never going to change. Mm-hmm. I think that's right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, to be more precise, what the sense is, is that we could we could become a post-racial nation. In principle, it is possible to purge people's souls of racism, but we won't do it because we're so fallen. Hmm. We won't. I mean, like, I, I know where we, this name doesn't, people don't want to mention this name, but if you hear Coates talk about reparations. We didn't get that far. We didn't get that far. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 13 minutes. <laughs> I apologize. It's all good, Coleman. It, if you listen to the rhetoric, the way he frames reparations, it it is reparations will be, you know, it, it's the, we're reaching the mountaintop with reparations. It will be the national reckoning, etc. He He talks about it as if this is in principle an achievable utopian point at which a society could get to if only we had the will to purge ourselves. And we won't do it. Yeah. We won't do it. And I don't want to belabor this point. I think I think it's certainly true that there there is this notion that that reparations could be a prescription for <clears throat> addressing the the economic inequality that is come about. Mm-hmm. But as we've talked about recently, Coleman, um, I think there are all sorts of other like spillover effects that wouldn't be repaired by just sending out checks. Right. And the notion that when a white person is interviewing you for a job, they are far less likely to give it to you or that if they see a black name on a, or an application, they're far less likely to hire that person. Like these are ideas that permeate our society or mm-hmm. conclusions, beliefs that I think most people adhere to. And I don't believe that they think, they being many woke people, that that is escapable, that it's something that can be addressed. The sense is that even right thinking white people can't help but be racist in various contexts and in ways they don't even when they don't even intend it. Um, while we're on that, actually, there's something that Coates writes in that piece, if if we're on Coates, and I think it's an important thing that he writes because I think it's representative of the way a lot of very reasonable people feel, is that he says, kind of as a codicil, that he's not sure if anything would actually solve the problem, even reparations. Right, he says true. he's not sure if there's any amount mm. that would work. And that's an interesting passage because there's a certain fatalism in it. It's almost as if he's saying, and this isn't just about him, because I think there are a lot of people who take this kind of line. Mm-hmm. Nothing could do it. I remember one very intelligent black woman who said to me once, I think we'll always be a sad people. And I said, so you really don't think anything could work? And what's interesting about that kind of thinking is that it's almost as if that sense of brokenness, the sense of sadness, the sense of a a shoe that's never dropped is a kind of badge of pride. I think that what it is, is that because of the history of black people in this country, there are ways that many of us use to replace what a true sense of pride would be. And one of those things is that you're eternally the victim of a racism that will never go away. And the reason that you're so fatalistic about it, the reason why a child might watch this and say, why would somebody want to focus on the negative to that amount? Why would somebody want to concede to outside forces, especially so abstract, and let that forge their identity? Isn't that a rather gloomy, self-defeating way of thinking of yourself? And the fact is, it isn't. You can actually have a sense of making yourself whole. I have many black social media friends who will say, I suffer racism every day, every day, with the every day in Mm -hmm. capital letters. And you know what? Racism, you know, I think we all know what it is, but 
No, that person does not suffer it every day in any way that any even compassionate person would recognize. But that kind of person, and I often know them personally and know, is proud of that. That is how they go out into their day. That's something that they think of as one of the things that makes them legitimate human beings. That's something that happens to a damaged race. And so to just take people like that and think of them as ridiculous, I think, is not constructive, because I think really there's a kind of a hurt inside. But nevertheless, I think that's part of it, such that one might say reparations would help. But then I've always thought with reparations, what's interesting is that even if it happened in exactly the way they said, you know, the next day the idea would be reparations was just a beginning. It could never actually be considered to have healed things, even if it had healed things. And I think that's part of why. The case for reparations for me is, a, is quite a powerful piece. Um, I don't know about the, the implementability of, of the project, but I do know that my dad is 81 years old. He's old enough to be my grandfather. And I know that the part of the case for reparations where Coates said there are still black men and women walking around who you can measure the impact of certain policies hmm. um, that prohibited them from accumulating wealth, passing it on, doing things that we can quantify, actually. It resonated with me. Um, my mother is a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant of um, no particularly... Um, you know, um, special um, stock or origin. Uh, her, her, her people didn't do anything, didn't achieve anything um, monumental. And yet, um, without doing anything, they do pass on um, material uh, wealth that um, you can show how policies affected my father. Mm. He's still alive. I think about that a lot. That that actually, I don't know about the feasibility of it, and I know Coates didn't either in the piece, but that struck a chord with me as uh, potentially something that could be done mm -hmm. to address specific wounds and could be concluded, actually. And in, in perhaps, and in, in this maybe I'll try again to transition <laughs> to some of these questions about inequality and economics. And I don't want to over-police the conversation. This is phenomenal and it can go wherever it wants, but it, it feels like we're approaching this uh, topic of the inequalities that exist in a contemporary context with respect to um, the, the, the income inequality specific to whites versus blacks versus Asians and Hispanics in America. Um, but also, um, Glenn, something that I saw you talk to, I believe it's Sandy Darity. If, if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. That is correctly. his last name. Um, and Sandy is uh, well known for doing some really groundbreaking, I think, work mm -hmm. on wealth inequality with respect to in-groups, so the various kinds of Asian people um, that, that live in America, also the various kinds of black people that live in America, but in general, addressing questions related to the really staggering, uh, in some cases, wealth um, disparities that exist between blacks and whites. I think it was last year when there was that story that ran in the New York Times about Boston, um, mm -hmm. where the average white family had something like $100,000 and the average black family had something like $8. It's the, it's it's the median, but okay. Yeah, so the it's, al it's also worth noting that in Sandy Darity's own paper, where he found that black Americans of Boston Bostonian descent had $8. Black Caribbeans mm -hmm. of Bostonian descent had $12,000. Mm uh, which still uh, still falls short still of like the hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah. But but when we when we hear the the shocking eight dollar statistic, yeah, what we're supposed to in, in, infer from that is this is 
all and completely uh, explained by color. Right. Although Sandy, I think, is quite careful in his own work when he talks about these things to talk about the fact that the reason he started looking, I believe, at those different national origins, which was with respect to Asian immigrants, is because there are differences there. Some not. I think the word culture almost came out of my mouth, but not just with respect okay, to culture, can, can, can also with respect here? to the amount of income they're bringing into the country when they come. I want to say two things. One Please. is the details matter, and the median is a very tricky statistic. That's Correct. the wealth of the person at the 50th percentile. Right. Versus it may not the be mean. a good way to describe the distribution. Um, but the other thing that I want to say is... Uh, if you look around the world, Thomas Sowell, the economist, the conservative economist, Hoover Institution, has made a living out of saying this, and it's true. Mm -hmm. You look around the world, you look in the developing world, you look in uh, Southeast Asia, you look in Africa, you look in the Middle East. There are no places where there aren't su substantial differences between groups right. and the extent to which they're involved in business and the extent to which they're entrepreneurial and which they own property and so forth. The presumption that such differences derive from discrimination and mistreatment is a myth. It, it's a it's a uh, it's a uh, article of faith. It's not actually a social scientific proposition. What what remains to be demonstrated is that the wealth gap is a consequence of the denial of opportunity to people. How is it that certain groups uh, are overrepresented? You want to talk about the Jews? You want to talk about how much wealth they've got? How many sure. billionaires who are Jewish there are? How many businesses they run? How many industries that they're prominent in? Um, the same logic that concludes that the underrepresentation of African Americans is necessarily a consequence of historical mistreatment must therefore have some implication, that same logic, about the uh, undeserved character of Jewish overrepresentation in this or that activity. Now, right. I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not asserting it's undeserved. I'm asserting that the conclusion that black underrepresentation is a representation of their mistreatment is unfounded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one way Thomas Sowell has put this is that if you look historically and globally, the correlation between mistreatment and discrimination on the one hand and wealth or income on the other is it's it's not one to one. It's not even it's not even the case that you can guess with precision that a given group will be at the bottom of society socioeconomically given information about how they've been treated. Think about how racially essentialist, indeed how racist it is, to use race as the category on which you rest causal conclusions about the differences in people's economic achievement. What I want to say to the people who uh, conclude pessimistically, nihilistically, that we're always going to be at the bottom, that blacks are a broken people, is that you're racist. I agree with you 100% on that. But specific policies... When my parents were looking for a home and they were steered to a side of town, that that matters. Would you would you concede that? I would, and I think those policies should be overturned, and I think there should be counter policies to ensure that that doesn't happen. Uh, the question is whether or not a half century on there should be racially contingent transfers to people as a consequence of those bad policies. I think that. Oh, go ahead, John. Thomas, to your that's a very valid point about housing policy and. 
Yeah, the Fair Housing Act of 1968, at least on paper, eliminated that sort of thing, although not completely. But still, it's definitely worth having a conversation about what the modern legacy of those policies would be, since it wasn't in 1865. You know, it was in living memory. My parents were affected by those policies, too. But the wealth issue is spread far and wide so that if you try to have a conversation about why, for example, there is such a small pool of Coleman's, for example, a small pool of black, especially black American undergraduates who are ready to study in an Ivy League school based on their grades and their test scores. And often the smackdown answer is supposed to be accumulated wealth. And wealth is a word with a certain flavor, you know, kind of like affirmative action or muffin, you know, where it just kind of (laughs) shuts down the brain. And you're supposed to say, well, there aren't enough black students who perform at that high level because they don't have the accumulated wealth. And we don't ask the question, which is exactly what stands between a person making those sorts of scores and grades that has to do with whether or not there's this accumulated wealth when we're talking about the sorts of statistics that we're talking about. Would the numbers really be that small? And just do a historical experiment. Roll the tape back, keep the film in color, make sure that you're really thinking about real life and go back to 1950. In color, there's dust in the air, people are living their lives. Go back to an August Wilson play and tell those people, do you know that none of your kids are gonna qualify for really top schools because none of you have enough wealth? A lot of those people would have smacked you in the face. They would not have accepted it at all. Yet somehow today, we think of that as some kind of wisdom. I just think we need to rethink it. Thomas, with all due respect to what you're saying, and I find the housing argument more compelling than, for example, the educational argument. Nobody would have understood that in the recent past. I agree with you 100% on that. Yeah, I I suspect that if someone who is critical, skeptical of the perspective on offer, to the extent there is one general perspective, that they would talk about the unique recentness, the unique depth, the expansiveness, and perhaps the ongoing nature of the deprivations that have been visited on black people in the United States of America, the the structural and institutional racism that continues to exist in their lives, um, and that the uniqueness of it makes it something that we have to talk about all the time. And the manifestations of it that are the inarguable, um, the sorts of things that I hear a lot of times. I talked to uh, DeRay McKesson, actually, um, uh, in a conversation that will be released on this podcast stream at some point, folks. Um, You know, I I have sort of a weird approach to releasing these things sometimes. Uh, But when we sat down, he referred to the like 80 plus to 90 percent statistic for blacks and Latinos being arrested for marijuana um, possession in New York City and how insane a disparity like that seems in a universe where we're regularly told that blacks and um, whites use drugs at the same levels. That that data point is a little bit questionable, but in either case, I think it's probably close to similar. So what accounts for that? I think part of the, the, the grand theory that was laid out at the beginning is that obsessing over race can, in fact, obscure some of that truth. And it's the questions you never bother to ask. And I think when DeRay said that to me, the first thing I said in response was, I don't actually care about the disparity. I am large. I'm exclusively, quite frankly, interested in how we fix these problems. It happens to be the case that Governor Cuomo thinks that marijuana is a gateway drug. This is an absurd and completely unscientific perspective to the extent that's driving policy. We're having bad outcomes for everyone. I want to fix that. But I do think there are explanations for that 90 odd percent statistic that are compelling and important for anyone who's curious to look at them. 
uh, the fact that blacks might have different utilization rates for emergency <laughs> services that culturally, wherever these places are, they may frown upon outdoor use of marijuana more than other people. The fact that culturally there might be more prevalent outdoor use than other populations. I've gone, I live in uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant now, and I talk about that a lot. Um, and <laughs> I've heard people talk about their experience going to some of these like police captain meetings and hearing folks articulate their concerns there. And it oftentimes is very different. They want a particular sort of enforcement. They, I've had kids at the playground who are sure. smoking, uh, smoking weed during the day when I'm out there with my kid or my wife actually had this experience. And you'll overhear some of the black residents of Bed-Stuy who've been there for a long time. And you can always tell um, complaining about this. Do they call the cops when they leave? Does it matter if that's what's going on versus the police actually targeting black suspects? Camille, I think it's consequential. The crucial thing is, and this, and you and I had a conversation about this a couple of weeks ago. Hmm. What was, and this is not personal about DeRay, but I think he represents a point of view. You said that. What was his response? Well, I didn't say all the articulate things I just said. I said, <laughs> well, I, that the, ruins it. The oh, narrow well. thing I said was, I don't care about the disparities. I only care about fixing problems. Well, for that, he would have just and, rolled his but up. But unless you, you understand, there was a lot of irony. Unless you understand the source of the disparities, you have no prayer of fixing the problem. Sure. But that requires some curiousness. And I'm, I'm thinking about um, Jonathan Haidt, um, who has this lecture that he's given on the, the <coughs> talos of the academy. And I know a few of you are associated with the academy in different ways. Glenn, you and John both teach at, Acad at the academy. Coleman, you're at the same academy as John, but you're a student and also becoming uh, in well, I think you're the rookie of the year to refer back to the <laughs> basketball <laughs> analogy. Um, Freshman XXL. <laughs> um, the Mookie Betts black commentary. I like that. Um, That's perfect. <laughs> but I, I want to maybe turn our conversation to the Academy a little bit, um, because what I heard John talk about was the notion that, you know, on campus, social justice and truth are somewhat at odds with one another and that the fact that social justice is become has become a lodestone for many of these institutions like can create a circumstance where there aren't en enough uh, conservative or perhaps just heterodox thinkers in these departments and they're unwilling to ask certain questions or feel unable to ask certain questions or frankly are just too incurious to even have this come up they know the result that they're looking for um, I wonder if that is something that those of you who are on campus are aware of, if you're sensitive to it, if you see evidence of that at all. And when I say that, I'm referring specifically to the to the presence of uh, a disposition towards social justice that's particularly pronounced amongst academics. I don't perceive it. It's there. It's simply there. It's been something that I have considered a reality since I joined academia back in around 1990. Nowadays, we have more labels to put on what goes on. But I can certainly say even in my subfield of linguistics, where I study Creole languages, there is a muzzling of any views about how those languages came to be that goes against a certain, nobody would call it this, but social justice warrior dogma. And if you're not saying the right thing, you get called all sorts of names. I've been called a racist for my 
frankly, rather dry, simple notions of the way Haitian Creole emerged. And it discourages some people from coming into the subfield. It is nearly killing my subfield because smart people who come in wanting to say anything interesting very quickly learn that if you say anything except recitations of a certain liturgy, sorry, Glenn, you are basically <laughs> hounded out of the field and you especially don't want that before you have tenure. And that's just in my little corner. But in general, the feeling in academia that you're only supposed to ask certain questions and you're only supposed to confirm certain things is part of being an academic. It is something where if you couldn't stand it, you wouldn't want to be one. And that's pretty fairly well documented. I, despite my reputation in some quarters as a right winger, I'm somebody who's actually just in the middle and unpredictable. Mm. And so you learn that you put on a certain hat. There are certain things that you don't say. There are things you find that as you get a little older, you can get away with because you're beginning to be seen as somebody who will be gone soon. I think I <laughs> just hit that last year when I turned 53. And so, yeah, no, it's not, it's not a perception. You don't have to walk around sniffing for it. It is the water that you drink on campus. It's the sorts of things students say. Don't say things students won't let you say. It's how you get tenure. It's how you don't get tenure. It is the modern college campus. It's not tenured radicals. I wouldn't say that. The radicals are relatively rare. It's just that they make the people in the middle afraid to speak up and teaches them what hats to put on. I'm a little bit guilty of that myself. So, yeah. It's um, it's very much there. It's not a cartoon, and it's a lot older than 2013. Coleman, what have you perceived? Yeah, I guess I would separate the classroom component from the social component. I've been in a classroom where I was so afraid to disagree with the professor, and I'm a, I'm an argumentative person. I, I'm a person with a, exactly. So <coughs> I, I'm not. I wasn't the typical student in that class. So imagine how the typical student felt. Colin, was this CC by any chance? This was not CC. Okay. I, I had a good CC professor. Philosophy for, course. Folks. This was a philosophy right. course um, called philosophy and feminism. But um, the professor of that course said at one point, "All people of color are victims of oppression." Full stop. This person wasn't a f person of color. It doesn't. It's not relevant because I would have disagreed either way. But I, in that moment, I was so terrified because mm. I did. I disagreed. I don't view myself that way, and I couldn't say so. And you no would one have been defenestrated. Oh, yeah. it, it was. I mean, but again, why didn't like you said, have the authority to say so? Okay, I mean, the, I could. The, the the best thing I can do is paint an analogy of of what the social psychological vibe of the room was it's sort of like being in a funeral where you know the person who died was an absolute asshole <laughs> and you know it but you can't no socialized human being would choose that moment to no. say it just donald trump might choose that moment to say yeah right yeah. you'd have to be you'd have to have no social intelligence whatsoever to oh. speak up in that moment so th there are many classrooms like that, and they're disproportionately in certain departments, which I stay away from. Uh, but most of my classes are great, and they're fine because I, I avoid those particular classes. So that's the classroom component. The social component, just hanging out with friends, it's really when you meet someone and – well, first of all, it's just worth saying most kids are not thinking about politics all day. They're At all. thinking about mm. – the party this weekend or their homework and their homework the internship they're trying to get their girlfriend boyfriend whatever uh but when the conversation turns to politics there is an unstated background presumption there's a background framing of any given issue as 
America is a fundamentally racist, patriarchal country. And that's the starting point for the discussion, for the most part. There mm-hmm. are rare exceptions to this. And I know at this point, most of the sort of out conservative students on campus, or many of them, the people who are willing to out. really <laughs> try to get things published in the campus newspaper. Right. Uh, but if you read the newspaper, you will read more or less one take about race. And it's the background presumption undergirding any discussion of, of politics. Although at this point, you have this bizarre circumstance where you are uh, a student at Columbia, but you also are a well-known person who writes not well known at Columbia. perspective. Oh, really? It's really it's interesting because I... I think I underestimated the degree to which people aren't reading outside their bubble. No one knows. <laughs> nobody, nobody knows who, yeah, this who I am. This surprises me that you're not getting nobody. collared. Yeah, not at all. My life has changed not a bit. Huh? You know, I'm at uh, I'm, I'm at the other side of the desk in the classroom. I'm teaching undergraduates about race and inequality, and um, I my perspective is consistent with what's been said, but maybe it, it, it gives a different angle of vision. Hmm. Because uh, I'm listening to young people like Coleman Hughes, uh, who do have questions, young African-Americans, who do have questions about the social justice woke consensus, who are afraid to voice them hmm. uh, in open discussion in class, but who come to my office, uh, in part because I've just given a lecture in which I've said, uh, whatever it is I've said, I'm not so sure about affirmative action. You know, I get that it raises the numbers of people in the classroom at a given point in time. But if we rely on that in the permanent way to get into places like Harvard, it might actually undermine the achievement that we're making because we basically label black people as a special dispensation. That's why they're here, kind of thing like that. And some kid will come along and he'll say, you know, Professor Lowry, I was thinking that thought. I was afraid to say anything to the, you know, whatever. I got 85, 90, 95 young people in my undergraduate lecture course on race and inequality. Five of them are black. Okay, at Brown, where 15% of the student body is black. Okay, there, some of them are coming there to hear from me, but others are staying away because they know what they're going to hear from me and they don't want to hear it. I just want to say one other thing, though. I think this uh, uh, oppressive environment of political correctness abetted by the consensus amongst the politically woke people is to uh, those of us who are somewhat heterodox in higher education, like the ubiquitous character of white supremacist racism in American society is to those of us who are people of color. By which I mean to say, we can either, that is those of us who have heterodox opinions, spend all of our time complaining about how politically correct and monocultural and uh, intolerant are our peers Hmm. who won't allow us to be dignified dissidents Or we can be busy doing our work and refuting the idiocy that they spout. Likewise, people of color can either allow ourselves to be a failed people because of the implacable character of white supremacy, which won't allow us any space to breathe. Or we can get busy raising our kids, starting businesses, educating ourselves and uh, making our way in the world. No one said it was going to be a fair deal. Nobody promised a black person in America that everything was going to be okay. Everything's not okay. Still, you got to live. And no one promised me as an intellectual that I was going to have people agreeing with me. Mm. Am I going to run around as a victim because of the fact that people don't agree with me and are unfair in their disagreement? No, I'm going to get busy. Mm. 
I was going to ask you a question, Thomas, sure. related to, to this. I heard you on a podcast recently um, and you you were talking a lot about the context that we currently find ourselves in here in the United States in particular. Um, and it's this notion of a resurgent, not merely resilient sense of sort of white nationalist sentiment or racial enmity between different groups, but something that seems to be resurgent now because of the president of the United States. And I was very reluctant to bring this up because my suspicion is, as it is usually the case in, in most rooms where I talk about this kind of stuff, that my perspective on this is far away from everyone else's, um, which is to say that I think Donald Trump is miserable in a lot of important ways, but most of those important ways are similar to the ways he, other presidents have been miserable um, and that the general case about the racism of Donald Trump is overstated and poorly supported. I agree with that, Camille. Oh, way. shocking. I know. Um, John and I have been on this. <laughs> oh, disagreed on this all. But I think Thomas <laughs> would disagree with that sentiment from some of the things that I've heard you say. Perhaps you think it is overstated, but you do seem to, to think that there is something that is unique that's going on now and some notions. And, and I'm asking about that, that unique thing that's happening now, because I suspect someone who's listening to this might say, you know what, before Trump was elected, you guys could get away with making these bold claims about black people achieving things. But look what just happened. They elected a white nationalist, white supremacist sympathizer. That is very much in the air. Yeah. And we can't make progress. We can't give up. Oh, my God, we're they going to put us back in chains, as Joe Biden promised. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do think uh, I think that you have to be careful about um Speaking specifically about Trump's racism, uh, I, I can't claim to know uh, what if that man thinks. Mm. You know, uh, I think he That's is a historically you, significant. That way. <laughs> he's a very historically significant figure insofar as Hegel meant. Uh, he he really embodies mm. the zeitgeist. Uh, you know, I think Coates That's is too. Good. I think actually have to get away from criticizing Ta-Nehisi Coates as a specific writer. He That's simply right. is the embodiment of a moment. That is very, you know, yeah, uh, par excellence. And mm. um, so in that sense, I think that what Trump's presidency and ascendancy really represents is that a significant number of white people um, were so rattled, upset, kind of um, turned off by the eight years of uh, meritorious, elegant uh, black family in the White House that they did want to see the office so devalued as to not mean anything anymore. And I I have family members that essentially would not think that they don't um, love my father, me, my brother, but were viscerally turned off by the Obamas this way. Wouldn't be able to articulate it in a coherent manner how they can be so racially excited by Obama. Uh, Tom, Tom, this is a genuine question because I... I disagree with this analysis, although I can see where it would come from. How did they indicate? And I mean, I'm sure they didn't say, I don't like Obama no, because he is black. It's different than that. What? What? How did they show it? Because I never encountered somebody. <laughs> My like uncle, this. who I'm no longer on speaking terms with since Donald Trump was elected. Your uh, mother's brother. Yeah, no, husband. <laughs> I, I talked to him. I love my aunt. Um, these are evangelical white Christians, uh, real gun owners, um, decent people, really decent people. Love my aunt. Her husband. Always thought he was a decent man. Facebook started exposing to me um, aspects of character and personality that I never knew just meeting people in person and mm. getting along as you mm. do in real life. But, you know, under Obama, I started to realize that he, he hated 
everything about Obama. And he would say, well, th this is just the stupidest president that's ever been elected. Mm. Six months after George, after the presidency of George W. Bush, mm -hmm. he would say, this is, I've never seen a president so stupid. He's so, he's so immoral. Yeah. He's so, he can't speak well. You know, things like this, yeah. which, which are objectively. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's a lot of stammering in there. A lot of, uh, 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 uh. I mean, it's a little bit. <laughs> I'm talking about, on the, heels, about on the heels of George W. Bush. I get it. Um, and so we would get into conversation. He could never explain what it was that so ex excited him. And then he just he, he just he just loved the idea of Trump. And I think what I think that again, I can't read peer into his soul. I think what he loved about Trump was not that Trump was putting whiteness on a pedestal because he's not. I think that they don't approve of the way Trump lives his life as Christians. But I think that they liked the way that he diminished um, and erased uh, the dignity that black people felt uh, through the symbolism, which I don't discount. I do believe in the power of symbols uh, from, from, from the Obamas. Um, and I think that that is not where I disagree with someone like Coates in the first white president, is that I don't think that you can make a blanket statement about white people. Mm -hmm. I mean, to, to say that that's how my mother as a, as a white woman in America uh, moves and was motivated is, is, is demonstrably false. But I think that there is a good amount of white people that that is the case for. I think that we discount the role of social media. And it sounds so tired to say that, but it's becoming such a long time ago that we don't remember. In 2008, you would wake up in the morning and you would get some coffee. That's just 10 years ago. And you would fire up your laptop and you would look at the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or whatever. And then you got email and about every second person never liked email, just like most people never liked writing letters. <laughs> And that was about the extent of it. And there were, you know, chat groups with email. By 2009, Facebook had jumped the rails from being for college kids and being for everybody. 2009, quote unquote, was when your mom was on Facebook. And I remember that very specifically, that it became that if you weren't on Facebook in 2009, that was when it became odd that you would say, oh, he's not on Facebook. That same year was the one where I remember sitting at a meeting and asking, what is Twitter? And it just kind of <laughs> jumping. And by the end of 2009, Twitter was something that a certain kind of person did. And when I joined in 2013, I was considered late. All of which is to say that I think that social media, those two things in particular, became default by chance the first year when Obama was in office and running the country so that people could express themselves in a new way. The Tea Party starts right then. And I think it's easy to say the Tea Party was because people didn't like Obama because he was black. I've venture, and I've never pushed this very hard, but I venture that if John Edwards had been elected, the Tea Party would have emerged then too, because mm -hmm. everybody could yell at each other all day long on those media. Now, is there racism against Obama? Yes. But I always wonder whether the reason that things got so heated in 09 and 10 wasn't really just that all of a sudden everybody could be on each other all day long, every day, starting in those two years, what, what do you what do you think? Yeah, I, I'm 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 going to say something that nobody here is going to agree. With. <laughs> I don't know about say, that. Okay, we'll see. I'm going to say two things. One of them is, who made race the issue here? Okay, I mean I'm talking about Obama's race. Who made it the issue? Is, is that a rhetorical question? No, it is a rhetorical question. You're talking about candidate uh, Obama because uh, I have an I, answer. I, I'm saying <laughs> that if uh, uh, iconically Chris Matthews gets a thrill down his leg at the idea of a black president. Oh yeah, who? <laughs> Who made Obama's race an issue? 
He desperately uh, wanted it to be an the issue. Liberals, <laughs> the liberals, the pro-social uh, justice, the anti-racist mm-hmm. made Obama's race an issue. Now, how did Obama perform in office around the race questions? When uh, Ferguson is burning down? When Baltimore is in disorder, what did uh-huh. he do? What did he say from the Oval Office? Trayvon Martin could have been my son, like et cetera, Trayvon. et cetera. How well did he handle the race portfolio? Mm-hmm. It was the so, Gates so, thing was the first so thing. I, I, yeah, that was the first thing. Yeah, that was the first thing out the gate. It doesn't, that one was not very important, but some of the subsequent stuff was mm-hmm. important. When mm-hmm. the president, this is just Glenn Lowry, okay? <laughs> when the president of the United States should have said, go back to your apartments. We are not going to tolerate disorder in the streets. Mm. I don't care what your beef is. The first order of business here is the maintenance of order. He didn't. But why is he that split the, first the difference? Order of okay, we can have that argument. Okay, he's the president of the United States. The maintenance of order in law, in the face of rioting, uh, somebody stands on the top of a car and says, "Burn this bitch down." Mm-hmm. About the fact that a grand jury didn't come to the right, con- quote unquote, right conclusion. Do you want riots in the streets of white people every time a black rapist is acquitted? When a white woman is the victim from somebody saying that, damn it, too many black people are getting away with crime. We don't want that. The race issue got bent out of shape in part, in my opinion, because people, black people and advocates of the interests of black people overplayed their hands. So that's one thing I want to say. The environment in which Trump emerges is to some degree in the suburbs of St. Louis uh, in the suburbs of Baltimore and in, in Western Pennsylvania and in Southern Illinois and Indiana and so forth as um, sharp and, and, and salient and powerful as it is because liberals overplayed the race card. That's my claim. Second thing I want to say is asserting nationalism is not the same thing as asserting white nationalism. Again, who made it about race? Mm-hmm. If, a, if a man says America first, there's an argument to be had. The argument is about whether or not the stance that American interest should come before everything else is a valid moral stance for a great nation to take. Who made it about race? America's not just white. The powers that be in this country are not merely or only white. So the people who made it about race have as much responsibility, in my opinion, as whatever the characterological flaws of this particular person who happened to emerge as the figurehead the uh, the uh, Hegelian embodiment <laughs> of a certain moment in the zeitgeist. But I would say that the people who made it in this specific moment about race were marching through Charlottesville with tiki torches. I would have to go with Thomas. Um, yeah. that, that was a clear... I think it got here way before that. No, but no, but I'm just saying that's an example of white nationalism. That not it about was. Nationalism. That's, a, that's about race. That that's is. not about Austria. Yeah. That, no, that, that's that, race. That was, as was the Richard Spencer thing that happened shortly after the president was elected. But the truth is that while those manifestations of white nationalism did materialize, it is not at all obvious to me personally that Donald Trump is what inspired those things. No, so, but Camille, may I, may I interject something? Because yeah. um, one thing that really. Uh, one thing that I find lacking in the in the in the in the race discourse we have nationally, yeah, please, and being led by people like Jelani Cobb, Ta-Nehisi Coates, they don't know white people very well. They don't know many white people socially. I can say, 
I don't, I don't know all white people, but I'm related to quite a few and they run the gamut. And there's quite a lot of racism uh, that I think you have to uh, recognize goes on in the minds of white people and even when they don't say things. And uh, I just, with my cousins, with my Trump voting family, with Republican family in California, the ways that conversations happened around Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, it may be the case that you're right, Glenn. I find that very persuasive the way you talked about um, how would we like it if every time a black rapist is acquitted, white people were rioting? I, I, you, I concede the point there. But I wish more people understood the way that uh, um, my cousin was talking about Michael Brown. I think ta Coates assumes the worst about white people in general. Mm-hmm. But, but there are specific white people that I think would shock some people that are quick to dismiss um, the level of racism. I hope I've made that co- coherent. Um, I, that makes perfect sense to me. I, I, I wonder, mean, though, if I can ask a question, like, do you think there is the possibility that that there's a really circular dynamic here. I mean, the fact is that when yeah. Michael Brown is shot and killed, that an entire narrative emerges. There's the massive rush to judgment. I remember being on the air. I was at Fox Business at the time, um, and we were covering <clears throat> this emerging story. And on virtually every network, you know, there's the, the emotional protesters that are in the street who have reached a firm conclusion. They don't need any further uh, investigation here. They know what happened. They want to see this police officer fired from his job and strung up immediately. And here we are, years removed from those events, multiple investigations later. And it turns out that so many of the elements of that story turned out to not be true. And I certainly agree with you. There are people who have gross retrograde perspectives on race. Um, there are white people that have that. There are black people that have it. I don't know how to quantify it. I don't know, you know, who it has may more be unquantifiable. Let me, can yeah. I, can I make a but, point? It, but is it, is it circular? Do you think? I think it feeds into each other because it's, well, I, later in the conversation, we may get into the fact that I think that it's counterproductive to talk about white people and black people. I want to get there. Okay. Yeah. yeah well, I, I was talking to my friend the other day, uh, also black and we were talking about the phenomenon of walking down the street late at night mm. behind a white woman, for example. And how nervous it makes you? Uh, how nervous. <laughs> 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 Who knows? She's going to give me she like a, a latte. <laughs> she might hand me a Starbucks latte. Whoa, whoa. Trafficking in stereotype thing. This um, is what it's like to be a black man. Uh, but f- feeling that she might be afraid of you. Hmm. Uh, how rightly or wrongly, and having that anger you because you know you have no ill intent in your heart, and feeling sort of this presumption of uh, malice that isn't true, and there's something about that presumption that says, well, if you're going to presume that about me, maybe I will be that. So I think the opposite thing happens too. When we accuse people of racism for things that are obviously not racist when you think about them for one second... For example, I I think the most recent egregious example of this was Trump calls Omarosa Manigault Newman a dog. dog. Yeah. And this is just in in MSNBC world. It's just so obvious that this is this is a racist slur. The the New York Times has a compendium of everyone Trump has called everything. (laughs) And if you look at the people he specifically called a dog, not saying they did X like a dog, but specifically called a dog. Several white people on that list, including the late Mac Miller. uh, Including David (laughs) Axelrod, Adriana Huffington, Ariana, Uh, Ariana Huffington. Good to be Adriana too. Why not? 
So the point, the point being, it's it's obvious to anyone with an internet connection and ten seconds of time that this was not. There's no reason to believe this was motivated by racism. So I, I think the same dynamic happens as walking down the street behind a white woman. Namely, if you're going to call me a racist, fuck it. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe I'll start to be one. I could totally imagine that being a psychologically real phenomenon for people. Can so, I just amplify? Yeah. Maybe I'll start to act in ways which defy the conventions that yeah. you have laid down, which define anti-racism, because I don't give a damn about those conventions anymore yeah. because they're selectively and inconsistently applied and have no relationship to any serious moral argument. I'm, I'm in it, strong agreement with all about, of that. What, what, what about this? Uh, I just want to toss something out there, talking about the religion and me being a heretic, that's where this question is going to come from. Thomas, yes, there are whites who are racist who we don't hear from. They keep it quiet around us. And, you know, they're not frothing bigots, but they've got some major attitudes. Most of them aren't, aren't aware of it to any real extent. You'd have to convince them, but it's there. And you get to know them. I dated some white women in the past where I met their families. I know I know what you mean. You know, it's a way that you really get to know white people is to date someone. Especially. Yeah. And so, and I don't mean even the someone, but if you date them long enough to meet all of their family, then you get a real sense. And no, I don't think people like Coates and Cobb have that kind of experience. But what you find is what racism there actually is, as well as the fact that maybe white people aren't overall quite as bad as they sometimes think. But the point being, yes, I'm going to make somebody up real quick. Cousin Beatrice is kind of a racist, and she knows it a little, but she doesn't know the full extent. Cousin Beatrice is kind of a racist, and it's passing on somewhat to her kids, Callie, and um, what would the guy be? Um, Billy, I don't know. So, yeah, yeah, they're kind of, kind of racist. Who cares? Well, and that's, that way, I, I that's mean, my point of view. A little more. I don't care. And some people would say, John, you don't care because you're a relatively successful professor. You didn't grow up poor. But no, no. Even if I sell shoes, why should I care that a certain number of whites are racist? Now, according to the religion, that's supposed to be something that I wake up thinking about, whether I'm white or black. Oh, my God. There are people out there who have racist bias. I've never understood that. I, I, I That's a... Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I have, um, I'm married to a French woman. Um, she has a grandmother in France whom I'm quite fond of, nearly 90 years old, from a very wealthy kind of um, old school upbringing. Very, uh, you know, she lived through the world, the Second World War, and um, she's, you know, been a beneficiary of colonial practices. And in her country house, there is a I have to describe it as a kind of a porcelain slave head, you know, very dark skinned, bug eyed. Mm. You can put your knickknacks, you can open the top of the head, put the keys. And I, there's a kind of of European that finds this just charming. Uh I I, I don't want a head Ah. of any kind or ethnicity (laughs) on my coffee table. You know what I mean? I want a stack of books. No heads, please. You know, but she's got it there. And when I first, you know, was part of the family, I mean, she, she loves my dad. She treated us so kindly. She really loves me. I can say that unequivocally. But, you know, we'd come in from the pool and I'd sit down and this head would just be staring at me, you know, <laughs> and I'd just be like, as a black man, like, <laughs> as a black man. do I need to smash this? Like, <laughs> how do I maintain my dignity? And right. like, I would even talk to my wife and my wife and her cousins. They're all they're They're super liberal. They're super woke. They're like, this is appalling. We're ashamed. Like, we don't want to disrespect her. But like sometimes when she's not looking, they would just hide it because scoot it away. Yeah, yeah. scoot it away. Because so she was she'd be like, where, you know, she'd be looking for something. So sometimes there was no polite way to do this and I would I'd be like Valentine as a black man I can't just be sleeping in this house anyway 
at some point we started to laugh about this because I'm performing an uh-huh. anger that I don't feel because what is actually the reality of my social situation is that I am on at least equal terms with my wife and that is the way we engage with each other. And I engage with her grandmother in, in conditions of full respect. Mm. And what is it about this head that is me? What yeah. is the relation between my life has nothing to do. And I understand symbols, but yeah, I am performing anger. There's a person who's going to say, but don't you understand that that symbolizes the people who were hung from trees and the attitudes that et cetera, et cetera. And you shouldn't think you're any different because a cop would pull you over too. What but, you so the to real question- so what I would say to that, I'll just, and then I'll give up the mic. But what I would say to that is we are on Shelter Island two years ago with my brother. A lovely place. A, sh- a lovely place. Long Island is a place I'm very aware cops can come on hard. We're leaving a wedding. My brother's driving a brand new, um, beautiful SUV. Too fast. Um, we've all been drinking. There may or may not have been um, uh, a friend <laughs> laying down in the trunk. Um, there was a dark-skinned black friend with his white wife in the back seat. Um, it was right after Philando Castile, I believe. Uh, we were my my who my, was shot in yeah, his car when he was reaching for my his... black friend is a photographer. He had just flown around the country photographing all of the sites where black men had been killed. I wrote the text. Vanity Fair published this. We were very much thinking about. Uh, Pop pulls us over. My brother is very much in a situation where things could go badly. Um, driving a Range Rover uh, in an all-white upscale neighborhood and. Um, the cop, white, big white guy comes over, says, you know, you were driving 20 miles over the speed limit. Um, let me see your license. My brother, I love my brother. He's a special kind of guy. He goes, my license is uh, broken in half, but I have a JPEG of it on my iPhone. And that's, oh. and, and that's like, that's permissible. Uh-huh. The cop goes, let me see your phone. <clears throat> he comes back to the car and he says, you know, it's just dangerous out here. And there are deer out here. And just promise me that you're going to, if I let you go, you're going to just get home safely. Hashtag stay woke. And I'm just saying that you can't prove a universal from a particular. Yeah. But that made all of us kind of just, we didn't know what to do with that because the entire narrative that we're sold and that we read and that we consume, as Coleman pointed out, that we just consume more than the numbers probably warrant uh-huh. every day, just dominating our conversations tells, tells, tells me that that's not, that, that can't happen. Right. Right. And so, Thomas... <laughs> Um, (laughs) If somebody says, why should I care that Uncle Benjamin or Aunt Becky is a racist? Now, a certain person clutches their pearls. Doesn't he understand? But what they're clutching their pearls about mostly in 2018 is the cops. And the truth is that what you just said about the cops is something that statistics can back up. Mm -hmm. So when I think I don't care whether Cousin Bernadette is a racist, it's not that I'm not aware of what I've been taught since I was a kid about the cops. But I think that narrative is coming out of date, in which case, what else? So I'm going to run into Aunt Bernadette. You know, in some setting where she's going to look at me as a little bit less than a full person. But, you know, I am a full person and the vast majority of people I interact with do think of me as a full person. And life gets much, much harder than running into some sort of occasional bigotry like that. Right. So that's what I mean by why should we care? 
Um, I talked a lot about the data related to police involved shootings in, in the media. And oftentimes it's very hard to make progress on these issues. I'm a proponent of criminal justice reform and have been for a very long time. I think there are a and number so is of Donald things. Trump. Yeah, well, this apparently. is interesting this week, actually. Um, but I'm a proponent of criminal justice reform. There's a lot of things I want to see changed. Um, my concern has long been that the Black Lives Matter movement has so polluted the waters around these issues that we cannot talk about them without making them racial issues. Um, which oftentimes leads to wrongheaded conclusions. If all you're worried about is training the police not to shoot black people and not to to preemptively judge them, you're not looking at what I think are the much more important topics. The fact that the police are often with along with district attorneys who work closely with them investigating their own shootings when they shoot civilians. That is heinous. That is an incredible injustice that most Americans are completely unaware of. It's something that some criminal justice reform advocates have been addressing, but they've been talking about doing it for more than a decade. Um, so two things related to that. The first is Donald Trump this week became uh, this week. Donald Trump endorsed the First Step Act, which someone at Reason Magazine is libertarian publication, as, as some of you will know, described as perhaps the most momentous and significant piece of criminal justice reform legislation that could be passed in the last decade. That includes all eight years of the Obama administration. This is Donald Trump, who is supposed to be signaling to, to white people or white supremacists anyways, that he dislikes black people. The same Donald Trump who is thirsty desperately wants to be photographed with every black person who kind of sort of likes Certain him black that he bumps into. Any any black person who likes him, Donald Trump wants to take a photo with them. He, he loves the blacks, as he says, and the blacks <laughs> love him. All of that to say that we're making progress on some issues, um, and that is interesting. But relatedly, like the fact is that we've been making progress on some of these issues for a very long time. This piece of legislation and a lot of the proposals inside of it are things that have been under consideration for many, many years. I mean, the the sea change that's taken place on criminal justice reform in this country is something that began in the early aughts. Um, and it began with George W. Bush during his State of the Union talking about the need to spend hundreds of millions of dollars preparing criminals who are leaving prison to enter society because... He thought there was a problem with mass incarceration. This goes all the way back. I mean, um, uh, prison fellowship ministries. Chuck Colson, mm -hmm. uh, Richard Nixon's henchman who went to prison in the 1970s for his misdeeds while a public official, he came out and he started a Christian ministry that became a global enterprise devoted to helping people in prison, premised on the metaphor in the Bible of Jesus at the crucifixion being next to a thief whom he invites into heaven, if hmm. the thief will, et cetera. Not to make a sermon out of this, but the idea that conservatives would be concerned about excessive incarceration, this is not a new thing. Uh, I also want to observe that the police uh, issue, use of force, has been racialized, and Black Lives Matter are an important part of that. But two to three times as many whites as blacks are killed by police in any given year. And the issue of police violence and police accountability is not a racial issue. And if one wants to make real progress on resolving these problems, one would be well served not to make it a racial issue. There's one last thing that I wanted to be sure to, to smuggle into this conversation if I can. Um, and it's something that I know you are writing a book about um, 
uh, uh, Thomas. Sorry, I didn't forget your name. It's just this is very exciting for me. Um, <laughs> both your book and the conversation in general. Um, but Thomas, your book is about like race and identity. And I know that this is another place where there is some divergence of perspective in the room. Like my perspective for a long time oh, is oh. related to the fact that I don't self-identify as black. I don't find it particularly useful. And I think that on a lot of the places where we've been unable to make progress, um, a great deal of the challenges with respect to these social issues like has to do with the way that we're thrusting race into these conversations. Very futuristic. And I don't know that we need to make ourselves forever prisoners to a notion of self-identification um, that is quite frankly, like pretty, pretty antiquated is often out of phase with sort of the realities that we find ourselves living in. And Thomas, I'd love to get you to, to weigh in on some of that. Cause I think you were hinting at some of those sure, sentiments yeah. earlier. Um, I came to a moment in my life where I started to question why I define myself by plantation logic. Mm. Um, and Actually, I was talking to John when he came in about this because in 2012, a year before my wife got pregnant, um, I realized I had married a white woman and my kids could uh, come out looking not very black. Um, and I wrote a kind of glib op-ed in the New York Times saying, but my kids will be black. And I, I realized in retrospect, it was kind of a last gasp um, essentialism that I wanted to cling on to, hmm. a kind of defiant last gasp. And John actually wrote a rebuttal to it. And he said, you know, I believe what you said, John, was that I've got a mixed kid. You're not going to define her as black for me. She'll define herself. Uh, you know, she's, she draws on I different said. cultures. Right. And I was kind of like, you know, offended by that when, when I read it and I was <laughs> I like, I didn't know that until now. <laughs> I was like, my, my kids will be black. And then, um, <laughs> I even had my wife, like my, my wife is French. I mean, it's, it's hard to describe how American this point of view is, but like yeah. Europeans don't really think the way that we do about hypo descent and the one drop rule. But mm. I had prevailed on my wife and she was like, I got a black baby inside me, you know? And, uh, <laughs> she, she was like, this is, this is cool. Like, I'm gonna have a black baby. And, uh, and, and we go that's, to the that's hospital. That's what they all want secretly. And, you know, we've had two kids baby. at this point we, we make essentially Swedish looking children you know like <laughs> blonde hair blue eyes alabaster skin and when this kid came out it, the, my daughter uh, was born and it, the, the the fiction of race kind of slapped me in the face and confronted me and I mm. had to and I had to think about what that meant That's not just for my child but what that meant reaching back for my own self-definition and what I realized is that um these color categories that Albert Murray James Baldwin a lot of people in the history of this country have have, have identified as baloney. Mm -hmm. Barbara and Karen Fields' Racecraft is one of the best books I've ever read on the subject. Yeah. Um, we know that these color categories don't adequately describe my daughter. Um, but I'm saying they don't adequately describe me, you. I'm looking around the room. We're, we're, we're all black, right? But we're all very different um, complexions. And, 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 and actually, none of us are black and no one is white, as Alvin Murray pointed out. We're mm. like a variety of beige to brown. Uh, we don't even have the adequate vocabulary to describe ourselves. And it's not a very meaningful scientific or biological um, way of thinking about how human beings create meaning, value, belong to each other. So I'm writing a book about um, how you can't transcend racism so long as you believe uh, in a category uh, that doesn't exist and that believe that people are different races. And, yeah. um, and it's based on my personal experience being the quote unquote black father of white children. Um, I have a black, I have a black father and my white daughter has the same smile as him, a lot of the same DNA. She's 
I did my 23 and me. She's almost 20% West African descendant. She would have been a slave uh, in certain states at other times in the country's history. Uh, and she would have been enslaved by people that looked exactly like her, mm. you know? And, 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 and yeah, um, I would like to get past a kind of racial essentialism that is certainly being reawakened on the right, but that might be harder to snuff out on the left, actually, I realize, because there's a kind of way that the left, the woke left that we've been talking about all day, clings to, to essences um, that I think is ultimately um, going to be extraordinarily uh, difficult to, to get past. That is one of the weirdest things, that it's people on the left who would most resist the way you and I are coming to mm -hmm. think. And I should say that when the color line was thicker, and it wasn't that long ago, I had no question about who was white and who was black. If you, you know, basically had a drop in you, you were black. That's the way I grew up thinking in the 70s and the 80s. And it made a certain sense. You were perceived that way in a way that made it so that for a biracial person to say, no, I'm both, was frankly irrelevant. And I always mm -hmm. felt that way about Obama. People would write me and say, why don't you call him biracial? And I think, no, he and I are the same age. He is a black man. Well, he but said with, that as well, yeah. Right. But with my own daughter, I just think that, you know, she's born 2012. She's what would have been called high yellow. And I just thought when she is 20, I don't know if the categories are realistically going to be the same. I don't know if I'm looking at a black girl. She's not a white girl. She's an upper middle class American girl girl who's somewhere in between like everybody else in Jackson Heights. And I just kind of thought... A time has come where there's a change. So I want you to know that I wouldn't have written that piece even, say, 15 years before. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It was just yeah. a new way that I started thinking around the year 2000 when I just thought the categories seemed to be changing. But there, it's for me, there's an age cutoff. I, I want to ask wanna... Thomas a question, do you, or I can ask you all if you're aware of the book by um, uh, Rogers Brubaker, the sociologist at the University of California, Los Angeles, called Ethnicity Without Groups. Okay, so hmm. you're not aware of it. I can tell by the looks on I'm your face. I'm not faces. even doing the fake nod. I <laughs> but, don't want to blog. Here's yeah. a book that's worth reading. And uh, I, I won't try to summarize the book, but I'll simply say this. There are entrepreneurs, I'm talking about political actors with interests, who by the positions they take, by what their organizations do, by how they raise money, by how they frame issues, people in the media about how they frame issues, politicians trying to get themselves <laughs> elected, are defining for us what these categories are. These are not biological <coughs> categories. These are not logical categories. These are socially constructed, politically realized out of struggle and conflict. And so if you believe what you're saying, Camille, and I think you do believe it, mm -hmm. and I think you do believe it, Thomas, they have to be fought. Agreed. Right. Okay? When they say this is a racial issue, somebody's got to say, no, it's not. Mm. Somebody whose skin is brown has to say, no, I won't allow myself to be so categorized, so relegated, so pigeonholed. No, I won't vote for you simply because you assert something. What you assert bears no real relationship to the history that you're trying to appropriate on behalf of your contemporary personal ambition. I'm talking about Al Sharpton. <laughs> I mean, just so that you don't get confused. Is Obama black? He needed to be black to get elected president of the United States. He, he had a very difficult I, I, time I, proving to people I that he was black. push back well, slightly here. I remember think, that? I think, oh, yeah. Yeah, Stanley Crouch was yes, a friend was of mine. I mean, he, yeah. he, blacks rejected Obama as black at first. Yeah, for the first 10 minutes. Till Iowa. Can I? Right, right exactly. It was, so I'm not the only one who remembers that campaign event where one of his supporters stands up in the audience and they say to him, you know, my friends keep telling me that you're black, but I keep telling them that you're not. And Barack Obama 
former president, Barack Obama, almost said Barack, because I didn't want to seem disrespectful. <laughs> um, but he says, I'm so glad you asked that question. And there really is an eagerness in his mm-hmm. voice. I want to find the audio, but I've had trouble finding it. But he said, I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, you asked that question. And he says something to the effect of, I self-identify, I'm, I'm regarded as black so I self-identify as black and I'm very proud of that. And the very first thing that I ever wrote um, or sort of did publicly related to race was I wrote a piece for something called America's Future Foundation. They had a publication called Doublethink about that moment. And what I wrote at the time was something to the effect of it will be impossible for Barack Obama to help advance us with respect to issues mm-hmm. of race because he himself is trapped in it. He has always tried to embody the the sense of, sort of authentic blackness, which I think you, Thomas, also address in the, the wonderful book that you wrote, Losing Your Cool, um, which people should go read. I wanted to underscore that point. But Coleman, you were going to jump in and say something. And I know we got to get out of here. So. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to I, I think some people are going to be listening to this and they're going to say, well, 50,000 years ago. Homo sapiens left Africa, and there were various groups that were geographically isolated for thousands of years, Mm -hmm. long enough so that certain people turned out looking like Camille Foster, roughly, and certain people turned out looking like the people from Sweden, right? Mm -hmm. How How does one deal with that fact, right? Because we can't pretend that that's not... When we say race isn't real, we have to distinguish between what I would say is the biologist's conception of race... Or perhaps populations is a better term. Populations is a totally different term, but it, yes, it, yeah, yes, and no because it it, it does track roughly correspond perfectly. to. It yeah. kind of roughly correlates with uh-huh. many of our lay conceptions of race. But when a biologist looks at Obama, the biologist says black. What are you talking about? That's a half African, half Caucasian. When we're just talking about the way that it makes the most sense to parse the history of our species. And the way in which the frequency of alleles differ between isolated populations. But on the social conception of race, which is what we've been talking about the past two hours, Mm -hmm. I make a sharp separation between the social, psychological, kind of emergent phenomenon of race under which somehow Barack Obama is black. Somehow I am black, even though like my mother was Puerto Rican. Her mother was very white skinned. Mm -hmm. Um, Although you do self-identify that way. Right. And that's the other thing I wanted to say is I used to when I was a kid, I just used to see myself as biracial because I just liked the the, the math of having a mommy who is Puerto Rican and daddy who is black and two plus two equals four. It just made sense. <laughs> and over time, without meaning to, I started calling myself black. And I don't I can't pinpoint when it happened. But looking back it on it. It wasn't any particular no, thing. It was a slow it was a sl- slow effect of the social incentive structure, the way in which one gets social capital for being black. I think this is my own psychoanalysis. Right. Right. So like what was there to be gained to keep calling myself only half black? There was something to be gained by just Mm -hmm. uh, identifying as black. And I I didn't do this in a cynical way, but I I just think people respond to the social incentive structure naturally that, uh, that, that, that they encounter. Uh, I, I love that. Um, I think, I want to say something in response to it, but I also know we're about at the end of our time here. I want to give someone an opportunity to jump in if there's something they've been burning to say and perhaps haven't had a chance to. Well, one quick thing. (laughs) (laughs) One quick thing. There are people listening to this who are going to say that how we are all black is how the cops feel about us. Mm -hmm. If we're going to try to disidentify from these categories, you have to remember about the cops. 
And I'm just going to let that lay there because I think that in 2018, any intelligent listener knows what a vast oversimplification that is. If anybody really thinks that the five of us are supposed to base a racial identity on how somebody who doesn't like us feels about us, then they're seeing us as people who don't like themselves very much, really. That's just too thin a basis for a racial identity. I agree with you 100%. You can't have your identity be defined by whether, um, as Ralph Ellison said, whether a waiter will serve you at a cafe. But that he said it better. I would like to ask uh, anyone here, are you aware of any instance where a black man or a woman has um, died at the hands of police or vigilantes um, uh, where poverty wasn't a factor or, or the cultural signifiers of such? Because I'm not aware of middle uh, uh, of a middle class black um being killed. Uh, a situation like Michael Brown or Trayvon Martin or something like that, except for the case in Coates's book. And then the big reveal is that that black. he was black. actually killed by a black cop. Yeah. Other than that, is, is there a high profile case? Because one thing that we never talk about in these situations is how class matters and how a lot of what we're always talking about when we're talking about race and blackness is... Um, a, a kind of vexed lower class black reality that has um, that needs many more hours to be talked about, but is not so simplistic as a racial category. We can assume that those cases have been rare. Yeah, I mean, let's let's allow that there must they be must such exist. cases. Right. The framing issue. This is Brew Baker again. The framing, how you frame. So class or race in the case of police violence, do we look at whether the person is black and the cop is white or the cop is black or whatever? Or do we look at whether or not they're rich or they're poor? And we mainly look through a racial issue. But you're going to have a hard time. And this uh, re refers back to something I said before, who raised the racial issue in the first place. You're going to have a hard time confining racial framing to cases where black people are victimized. Um, I know maybe it was six months ago, nine months ago, a white police commander in Chicago was murdered at the bottom of a stairwell in a building across the street from City Hall in downtown Chicago by a black man. I did not see a single report in the newspaper that said black criminal executes decent white police commander. Now, if it had gone the other way, the report would have been white police commander executes unarmed black man. Mm. And here's my point. No newspaper is going to run a headline saying black criminal kills white police officer. But tens of millions of Americans who some people are going to want to call racist and who are going to go out and vote for Donald Trump are going to read that situation as black criminal executes white commander. Now, I'm not saying the only reason they read it that way is because Black Lives Matter is out there making a big deal about racial framing of these kind of incidents. Sure. But I'm saying that contributes. Sure to a framing that we all ought to want to get away from. Yeah. Well, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, I, I want to I thank you guys for being here. Um, and I'm, I'm contemplating whether or not I should throw in like one last thought here. No one's going to stop you. Okay, good. <laughs> um, I'm thinking about the, the notion of race. I'm thinking about what you just said a moment ago, Coleman. And I know that we both have recently read David Reich's book, which mm -hmm. I read a couple of weeks ago, actually. And I thought this, was this Jean's like, book. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. I thought it was really spectacular. Um, and as, as you were describing, Coleman, there is some correlation, it seems not. not I mean, it might be I think the way I described it before uh, is better than saying there's some correlation that the 
general perceptions of race that we have typically correspond to realities with respect to populations. Mm -hmm. Um, But those populations, as David describes in the book, are themselves incredibly diverse mixtures of pop of people who lived in those places at various times in the past. And, you know, to look at me and to regard me as black um, actually obscures the fact that like my great grandfather was from Scotland and came from Scotland and went to Jamaica and contributed to my genome. But it's also the case that I am not the the product of my genes in in so broad a sense that it actually captures some semblance of who I am. Right. Us relegating ourselves to only regard ourselves with respect to these categories. We do that at our own peril. It sounds like we all agree on that sentiment, even if it manifests itself in different ways. And it's been a real privilege to sit down with you gentlemen and talk. This has been... a, a a career highlight for me. Um, And uh, I hope we get to do it again at some point in the future. So thank you. Thank you, Camille. Thank you, Camille. It was a great idea. The fifth column. As you may recall, in the last dispatch, we did announce that we will be having our very first live recording of the podcast here in New York City on Tuesday, December 4th at the legendary Comedy Cellar here in New York City. If you are in New York, if you are somewhere close by and want to come, hell, if you are in L.A. or Tokyo and you want to get here for that event, um, I hope that you will. And if you're looking for more information on the event, like where to get tickets, etc., you can find that at wethefifth.com forward slash events. That's wethefifth.com forward slash events. 